Steel Profiles podcast is brought to you by the AISC Design Guide series. The second edition of Design Guide 21, Welded Connections, a Primer for Engineers, is available now. Visit AISC.org slash design guides to see what's new and download a free copy today. Welcome to another episode of Steel Profiles. I'm your host, Margaret Matthew, Senior Engineer in the Engineering and Research Department at AISC. My guest today is Ron Clemensic, PE, SE, and Chairman and CEO at Magnuson Clemensic Associates in Seattle, Washington. Ron received his Bachelor of Science in Civil Engineering from Purdue University in 1985 and his Master of Science in Structural Engineering from the University of California, Berkeley in 1986. Ron has worked on projects in 25 states and 24 countries. He is sought out internationally by developers, architects, and contractors for his creativity and big-picture approach. He continues to lead the advancement of performance-based seismic design of tall buildings. Ron serves on AISC Task Committee 5 on Composite Design, is a board member of the Charles Panko Foundation, and is a fellow and past chairman of the Council on Tall Buildings and Urban Habitat. In 2018, Ron was named as ENR's Award of Excellence winner. Welcome, Ron. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy, busy schedule to sit down and talk to me today. Uh, it's a great pleasure. Thank you. I've read a lot of really interesting things about you, starting with that you were building cities in your sandbox when you were five. Yes. Did you or always? Earlier. Or, or earlier. I don't know. I can't exactly remember that far back, but I know when I was very young. Uh, in fact, I have photographs in our family photo album of me in my sandbox with my matchbox cars and my buckets and shovels and building cities and then demolishing them and building new ones. <laughs> Did you, so you always knew you wanted to be an engineer? Uh, well, heavens no, not at five. I mean, I liked building cities and that was all fun. Uh, I think the first time I knew what an engineer might actually be was until probably around middle school because I remember distinctly in sixth grade drawing many, many, many designs of mansions, very large homes with bowling alleys and swimming pools and things, and thinking I was going to be an architect. And sharing them it's with It's funny, my, that's how a lot of us start out. Yes, <laughs> sharing those pictures with my elementary school art teacher, mm -hmm. who encouraged me to keep drawing and keep dreaming and translating my dreams into paper and pencil. Uh, and so that was kind of at least my first inkling with actually thinking about designing buildings. But I was going to be an architect, and then I have two uncles who are both civil engineers. Mm -hmm. And around eighth grade or so, they sat me down over one summer and talked to me about the difference between an architect and an engineer. I'm curious and what they told you that difference was. Well, simply put that, uh, at least in my context, that I had a strong aptitude for math uh -huh. and science, and that my drawing skills were less than <laughs> exciting, or less than exceptional, and that perhaps engineering might be more uh, in keeping with my natural talents. And them both being civil engineers, one was a actual civil engineer turned contractor, mm -hmm. and the other one was a civil engineer who was working in infrastructure, mostly for Georgia Power and Light. And they just talked to me about kind of what they did as their jobs. And I was particularly drawn to the construction aspects of what they described in their jobs and thinking, wow, it's really fun to build things. Mm -hmm. um, so that was maybe eighth grade when I first knew my, maybe what an engineer was. Still didn't really know, but sure. kind of thought, well, okay, that makes sense to me. Maybe if I work hard in science and math, then I'll find my way through an engineering line of study. So you did. You earned your bachelor's degree at Purdue University and your master's from the University of California at Berkeley. Uh, what do you think was the biggest strength of each program? Well, at Purdue, I have to say, uh, looking back to my career there, that the strength of the program lied in two aspects. One, primarily in the fact that the faculty, the professors, taught the undergraduate classes. There weren't a lot of, well, there were TAs, but the TAs really just graded the homework. They weren't really actively engaged with the students, where uh, in all of my classes throughout my undergraduate career, every class was taught by a professor. 
Uh, we had direct one-on-one -on -one engagement throughout, which was fantastic because they were really exceptional teachers. Maybe they weren't the most well-known as far as research and development went, but they were extraordinary teachers, and so that was really beneficial to getting a really sound baseline of understanding of engineering. And then at Berkeley, when I went to Berkeley, of course at that time Berkeley was the number one structural engineering school in the country. The faculty was profound with Professor Wilson and Professor Chopra and Professor Scordellis and Professor Bertero and on and on and on. And I had all of them for my classes. And so the guys with their names on the books. On the books, yes. <laughs> and so learning from the best. Now there, there was a combination of the faculty teaching and the TAs teaching. Yeah. So there wasn't as much direct interaction, but there was still strong interaction with the faculty. And in, in both instances, to me, that was all the difference. That uh, I can't imagine going somewhere where I wasn't actively engaged with the faculty uh, day by day. And that was really, uh, I, I think, a big highlight of both experiences. Uh, while you were at Purdue, you were the president of the student chapter of ASCE. And to fund your senior class trip to Chicago, you got very creative with your fundraising efforts. Yes. What was your big idea? Well, you have to recall that we were, I think at the time, 20 years old. Mm -hmm. And we were college students, and uh, we needed to come up with something fun and exciting and interesting. Uh, anyway, long story short, we decided to sell underwear mm -hmm. as our fundraiser uh, to the general student population. And so we came up with a number of designs that we intended to prepare. <laughs> I don't know what's the right word here. <laughs> but the, the idea is we went to J.C. Penney and we bought, you know, a couple boxes, big large boxes full of men's and women's underwear onto which we silk screened various designs. Oh, okay. And so the idea was you could select your style and color and design, and we would make custom underwear for you. <laughs> and and the, the, the real brilliance of this was not so much the uniqueness of the offering, but that we then elected to go uh, night by night, house by house, to all of the fraternities and sororities oh. and sell them underwear with their Greek letters silk screened on them. Is that and where you made all the money? That's where we made all the money. Oh, okay. And so we actually made many thousands of dollars enough to send a very large contingent of our senior class to Chicago for I think was about a two and a half day long trip to go visit construction sites and design offices and drink a lot of beer and eat a lot of pizza. <laughs> of course you had a pizza in yes. Chicago. Okay, so you joined Skilling, Ward, Magnuson, Berkshire early in your career. Uh, 1992. And after so. only six years, yes. you were elected president. Yes, yeah. And that was slow by Skilling standards because Magnuson was CEO when he was 32, I think. So. Wow. Okay, yeah. so it was kind of a culture there. Yeah, uh, it remains our culture that uh, it's not about years of experience, it's about talent. And, s and skill, and as people show their talents and skills, they rise quickly in our organization. And Magnuson came before me under Skilling's uh, mentorship, and I came under Magnuson's mentorship and, and rose quickly. That was my next question, is do you have a mentor? Yeah, well, um, I have several actually, but John Magnuson being the most influential and kind of most impactful on all aspects of my life and my career and, and to this day remains so. Do you think that when you first started there that they, they saw that potential in you and groomed you for that all along? Or? John Magnuson did. Yeah. I don't know that anyone else did. <laughs> in fact, there were a lot of skeptics and a lot of people wondering who this new kid on the block was when I joined because I joined the firm 29 years old and I was just still kind of wet behind the ears and the eyes of many. Mm -hmm. and, and, but Magnuson saw something and opened, I initially opened just a lot of doors for me and kind of cleared the path for me to kind of do my thing and then along the way coached me and mentored me as I found my own way. He didn't really set out a path and say follow this, he really just kind of let me go as I 
meandered my way down my path, he would guide me and make sure I didn't go too far out of bounds. So were you surprised by that? By that? Yeah, for way? sure, completely surprised by that, because that was never really the ambition or the goal. It wasn't my goal to like climb the corporate ladder. That, I didn't set out to like I'm going to be CEO or I'm going to be have my name on the door. I, that was never even on the radar screen. Really, it mm -hmm. was more about. Initially in my career, I wanted to design the tallest building in the world, and that was a pursuit for many, many years. Designing the tallest building in the world. That's and a now, big goal. Yeah, it was a big goal, uh, and today I can say I haven't yet achieved that goal. I have, in fact, worked on three of the tallest buildings in the world, not as the engineer of record, but as a formal reviewer of the design. Uh, and I have to tell you, after having worked on now three, uh, it's not my goal anymore. Uh, while I still am fascinated and interested in things that are tall, today I get a lot more satisfaction and I'm far more interested in the, the group of people with whom I'm going to get to work mm -hmm. and how uh, skilled and inspiring and, and forward-thinking they are. So I would be very happy to work on a very modest-sized project anywhere on the planet if I get to work with some really cool people. The quoted as saying, I have always challenged the norm and sought a better way to design and build. Where does that motivation to innovate come from? Hmm, where does it come from? I, you know, fundamentally, I think it comes from my parents, uh, primarily my mother. We're kind of way in the weeds now, but it's it's this kind of insatiable appetite to learn, coupled with the fear of failure. And you can define failure a number of ways, uh, I suppose, but uh, fear of failure could be fear of losing to my competition, fear of not performing at the highest level, not getting an A in the class, so to speak. Uh, all of these things combined uh, kind of fuel the fire, I suppose. What so did your parents do? Uh, my mother was a school teacher, uh, so that's the learning aspect. And she came from a family of educators and, and people who cared about learning and education. My father was blue collar, uh, and so that's where the work ethic side mm -hmm. comes from. Yes. So you pioneered the idea of performance-based seismic design, which was a huge innovation in tall building design. So explain the concept and why it was such a, a revolution. Yeah, so, so just one clarification. I didn't really pioneer performance-based seismic design. Those who came before me pioneered it in the area of building renovation. And I borrowed from their framework, their thought process, and adapted it to high-rise. So yes, I was the first person to really uh, take that idea and pull it into the world of high-rise design. So I'll take credit for that. But even before the people that, in particular, I'm going to credit one guy, Ron Hamburger, mm -hmm. um, who's brilliant in his own right, and he really led a big charge as it relates to the framework of performance-based design in general, even before Hamburger, for example, myself, Professor Bertero at Cal Berkeley taught a class uh, that was called Limit States Design. At its core, at its essence, that is performance-based design, that you determine certain serviceability or safety limits, however you define them, and then you design to those limits in a very rational and rigorous way. And that was this course Bertero taught. Uh, when I was a student there, he'd probably been teaching it for 30 years prior to me. Uh, and that's the essence of performance-based design. So the combination of what had already been developed in retrofit work, seismic retrofit work, combined with this class that I took from Professor Bertero, faced with tall buildings that don't really want to fit into the prescriptive language of the code, the thought in my mind was, why can't I use first principles of engineering, science, and math, and physics to design anything you could imagine? Why do I have to be limited by these things in the code? And that was kind of the beginning of it all. 
you're known for being an expert in tall building design, but I've heard that you are afraid of heights. Yeah, definitely afraid true? of heights, yes. Oh, definitely yeah. afraid. Case in point here, just a couple of weeks ago, the Salesforce Tower in San Francisco opened. It's 1,070 feet, and it's a tall building. It's not nearly the tallest, right, but it's a very tall building. And our firm designed it. I was very intimately involved in that design. And I did venture to the very top, to the 1,070-foot level where there is a catwalk of steel grating next to the window wash equipment. Mm -hmm. And I stepped out there onto the catwalk and I lasted about 20 seconds. And I had to leave because I, 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 my whole body becomes overwhelmed with adrenaline and this sense that I want to jump. Oh, okay. And of course I didn't, <laughs> so that's a good thing. But, but I get this very freaky feeling and I get very almost dizzy. Mm -hmm. and tingly and, and I, I think it's adrenaline flowing through my body but I need to leave and I went down off the catwalk into the building and once I'm inside the enclosed space by the glass I'm okay then you're fine but it's being out in the open at a high height I can't take it I just I can't take it so I had to leave so as long as you're inside the building, you, the height yeah. doesn't bother. I've been to the top of the Burj Khalifa, which is the tallest building in the world today. Mm -hmm. And I've been to the observation deck. And there's an outdoor component to the observation deck. And I went outside, and I couldn't. I didn't last more than a minute. I, I just I couldn't be out there. I had to go back inside, inside the enclosure. And then I was fine. Is this something you've had your whole life? As long as I can remember, yeah. Yeah, which is very odd. People ask me about it. How can you be uh, an expert in tall building design? And well, that you wanted to design the, the tallest, tallest building, building in the in world. The world. <laughs> and, and so my kind of sarcastical comeback to that question is, well, I'm a structural engineer, and that means I have a profound respect for gravity. That's an excellent comeback. That is so, an excellent comeback. Anyway, that's what we do, right? <laughs> yes, that's what we do. So you're at the forefront of the design and construction of the Rainier Square Tower project in Seattle that utilizes a new composite construction technique that's being called a game changer in the industry. What is this new phenomenon? Right, so we hope it's a game changer. Uh, still to be proven, but we're well on our way. The issue is this, for many years now, for uh, the lion's share of my career, we've been building not just MKA, but most structural engineers have been designing tall buildings have, that have reinforced concrete cores in them, and then are surrounded by steel framing, mostly office buildings. With those designs comes a certain construction schedule and a certain approach to how you actually make the building, how you actually build it. Uh, and what we've learned from that experience is that the construction of the concrete core determines the schedule for the building. And so the question was, how can we build that faster? And, and so part of the answer lied in this composite core wall construction. So instead of having a reinforced concrete core that is jump formed and leads ahead of the steel erection, to instead put the entire scope of work into the steel erector's camp mm -hmm. and let them erect uh, as they go all, all at once. On paper, proved very promising, um, saving on paper at least many months, at least as predicted by the engineers, myself and others. Uh, but now that we're under construction with Rainier Square, the steel fabricator and erector are confirming again on paper that they think it's going to save actually quite a bit more than we predicted. We predicted four months of savings, they're saying eight. Eight months of savings is, is crazy wow. and wonderful. Yes. Uh, even four would be good as it relates to uh, the financing costs of construction, the overhead of the contractors, and getting the rent paid sooner. Uh, you know, there's millions and millions of dollars at stake for the owner of the building if we can really achieve this. And, and right now, I think it's four months. The contractor thinks it's eight months. Let's call it six. That's amazing. That'll still be fantastic. Yeah. So the system saves so much time because you're using steel plates kind of as the formwork. Yeah, the for steel the concrete, plates do. And then they don't, you know, the, the formwork doesn't have to be taken down. You don't have to wait for concrete to cure. Yes, all of these things. The steel plates do more than just act as a formwork. They're replacing the reinforcing steel. So there's no reinforcing steel involved in the system. It all can be prefabricated in panels. So you're putting up large sections of the wall in, in one go. 
included in that can be all of the door openings and mechanical and electrical penetrations can all be prefabricated in the shop and then once it gets to the field it's just setting pieces in place uh, and the erectors are able to set the pieces very quickly mm -hmm. uh, at a rate that in round terms are as twice as fast as you could build a reinforced concrete core so if it takes let's say one week to, to, to build one floor out of reinforced concrete, we can build two floors in steel. I mean, it's kind of at that sort of comparative rate. It's twice as fast in steel. Mm -hmm. uh, and so this is the promise of the system is speed. And all, at the moment, right, where all systems are go, the building's under construction, and you know, by the end of this year, we'll probably be a third of the way up in the air, and so then I won't have to tell you that, yeah, we hope it's <laughs> that fast. We'll have the evidence, right? So it's under construction. Where are they at in construction right now? Right now they're digging a very deep hole. <laughs> uh, the owner's requirement was for seven levels of parking below grade. Mm -hmm. uh, so they're right now about halfway down with the excavation. Uh, they've dug about 40 feet. They've got about 40 more feet to go. Uh, they're due to be done with the excavation in mid-July and steel erection is supposed to start in earnest in August. Okay. Uh, and so once they start steel erection, they're predicting 13 months from the top of the foundation, which is at basement minus 7, to the, the roof, which is effectively level 59. 66 levels of construction in 13 months wow. is what they're talking about. So with all of the advantages of the system, what are the potential problems that you've had to work through? Well, so far, no problems. Uh, we've anticipated a lot of things. The, I'd say the one thing that we're most, I, w I wouldn't say concerned about, but are, have our eyes on very carefully and very thoughtfully is I'll describe as field fit-up. When these panels arrive, they're all being fabricated in Portland, and they're being shipped to Seattle on trucks. As they arrive to the site and are picked and erected and set in place from one panel to the next to the next, how do they actually fit together? And will they fit together closely enough that the connection in the field can be made as planned? Is that a welded connection? Yeah, in Seattle we gave the contractor the option of bolting or welding and it was the contractor's choice to weld, mainly for the same exact reason, field fit up that they feel like they have more tolerance and flexibility if they weld than if they tried to align bolt holes because it was not a few bolts, it was a lot of bolts. And to have all those holes match up in the field, uh, they were concerned that they would not uh, and it wouldn't give them as much tolerance and flexibility so they've chosen to weld. We're working diligently with a few fabricators around the country to reimagine that connection as a bolted connection that will allow some field tolerance so that in markets like New York or Boston or Chicago where welders are few and far between and very costly once you get them mm -hmm. uh, to be able to make those field splices as a bolted splice and so technically it's possible we can design it, it's not a problem. It's just making it contractor friendly, which mm -hmm. is really kind of what we're scratching our heads on at the moment. So you said that the panels are prefabricated with the openings in them for mechanical, electrical plumbing. Right. Um, was that hard to coordinate so far? <laughs> <at this time>? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so in the case of Rainier Square, fortunately, uh, it was relatively easy because the owner of the project, Wright Runstead, uh, has a long-standing uh, relationship with the contractors and subcontractors. And so the contractor and subcontractors were at the design table from the beginning, uh, which is unusual, frankly. Uh, most times that's not the case, and what often happens is we're panicking in a chaotic sort of way during construction to coordinate these mechanical electrical openings right. because it's not till it's under construction that the contractor is engaged and figures it out. Even with the best efforts of a mechanical and electrical engineer on the design side, oftentimes the contractor decides they want to change things for their own convenience. Sure. In the case of Rainier Square, that wasn't the case because the contractor was involved from the beginning. So we, we had that luxury. Mm -hmm. um, but I think for this system, 
there's great benefit to be achieved if, if that can be coordinated and those penetrations can be fabricated in the shop. It's not that they can't be installed in the field, they can. And in fact, you'd say that from one point of view, if you have to cut a new opening into the core wall, in the case of this system, you can actually see what you're cutting as opposed to a reinforced concrete wall where you don't really know where the rebar is until you actually get in there and cut it. Right. Uh, so from that aspect, it's actually a bit simpler because you know ahead of time what you're going to deal with. How oh. thick are these panels? Uh, they vary. On Rainier Square, the thickest are 42 inches, so quite thick at the base, uh, and they're as thin as 18 inches. But all of that thickness relates to the design of the building overall. That's not inherent necessarily to the system. They'd be that thick if they were reinforced concrete. Sure. It's just the geometry of this particular building. This system is a perfect example of taking research in the lab and quickly translating it into design practice. So were you involved with the research that was done at Purdue? And yes, from the beginning. Uh, the beginning being in the late 2000s, almost 10 years ago now. We, we started thinking about this, how do we build faster, more than 10 years ago, and had this idea of this composite core wall design back then, and we, we ended up working with Purdue to put a research program together to start testing panels and this construction approach back in the late 2000s. We kind of culminated the first effort in a design guide that was published, uh, well we wrote it in I think 2010, it might not, might not have been published in 2012. But yeah, from the beginning uh, on the research and now today we're doing more research at Purdue and at Buffalo Professors Varma and Bruneau mm -hmm. to uh, improve the efficiency, improve the effectiveness of this system and its various details. So it's kind of ongoing, let's say, improvements. What is the Panko Foundation and how is it integral? Yeah, so the Panko Foundation, uh, Charlie Panko was a building contractor and a real estate developer, mostly in California and Hawaii did very well. He was very successful at both real estate development and building construction. During his life and his career, he amassed a fairly substantial fortune. Uh, and upon his death, he, in his will, he instructed the formation of the Charles Penko Foundation uh, with a portion of his estate to form the endowment to create the foundation. And the purpose of the foundation is to fund research to help the industry better itself. How do we design and build better buildings? And so industry betterment activities, whatever they may be, to help the industry build, design and build better buildings. That's what the Panko Foundation is and its mission. Uh, I was invited to join the foundation's board in around 2005. I had known Rick Kunath, who is the president of the board. Rick had been the CEO of Panko Builders and I knew Rick through my day job, so to speak. They were contractors, we were engineers, we worked together, together occasionally, uh, and we knew each other, and so Rick, as the Panko board president, invited me to join the board, and it was the Panko Foundation who funded the early Purdue research, and is currently funding, along with AISC, the ongoing research at Purdue and Buffalo. So this new system, isn't in the building code yet. So how did you get the project approved? Well, in part it is in the building code, in part. Uh, it's in the building code as it relates to nuclear facilities. Professors Varma and Bruno had been doing a bunch of research prior to my involvement with them looking at this system in nuclear applications. And so when we went to extend the idea and the research to what we're doing now, that's how we found them, uh, because they had a body of work already that was somewhat relevant, mm -hmm. although they were looking at things like blast resistance and projectile resistance and shear resistance for squat walls. They hadn't really thought of tall flexural walls for high-rise buildings. Right. But they had a, a body of work that was um, relevant, so that's why we engaged them both, because they already had expertise in this type of construction, and they were both very excited to kind of extend their knowledge that they already had to something new. 
And so that's how we engaged and, and why we engaged those two researchers and today continue to work with them on, on trying to make the system better. So AISC has a nuclear spec, the N690 yes. spec, and then oh. they've got an appendix that talks about... Right. Um, yeah, how do we get this approved? That's right. What yeah, all right. So <laughs> <laughs> like, like a lot of things that we do, uh, kind of back to the performance-based design, to today uh, perform a performance-based design for any building, no matter what its system or geometry, a third-party peer review is required. Uh, no matter what jurisdiction you're in, this is kind of the, the way these projects are executed. So we had kind of the, the convergence of those two activities on Rainier Square where not only were we going to do a performance-based seismic design anyways, so we were going to have a peer review anyways, mm -hmm. we were doing a new system that wasn't really defined in the code as well. So it just kind of melded together that we, through the third-party peer review, <coughs> which included Jim Malley and Ron Hamburger on the structural engineering side, and Michelle Bruneau uh, from the academic side, and then we had C.B. Krauss as a seismic ground motion reviewer. They collectively reviewed our design and did not only the performance-based seismic design kind of review, but the system along with it. So did you have any trouble with the building code officials? Did you have to convince them? Trouble, no. Convince them, yes. <laughs> uh, you know, I think the review was properly rigorous. I think I was happy in that all of the participants were productive in their commentary and, and not trying to be in any way uh, obstructionist. But they asked hard questions. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they didn't leave it to say, oh, that's great, here, my, here's my signature. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, they asked very thoughtful and very rigorous technical questions that we had to prove that the system would work. And in many choices or many design choices for this first building, uh, we made conservative decisions, uh, noting that we didn't really want to fight certain battles because mm -hmm. uh, that really wasn't a prize. The prize was to get the system approved in global sense and build the building. And if we had to be fairly conservative in certain choices along the way, so be it. So that's what we did, and the system was approved. What we're doing now with the research ongoing at Purdue and Buffalo is to now look at those questions where we know we made a conservative choice mm -hmm. and trying to figure out how far then might we push that in the future. Uh, so, for example, one of the items that we've been looking at at Purdue this last year has been the, the size and frequency of the cross ties between the two plates. How big do they need to be? How frequently do they need to be spaced? And what different configurations might you imagine in order to have fewer numbers of them? You know, the Purdue work's been very informative to that end, so now we have a better understanding for the next building how we might uh, dial that back a little bit from what we're actually building in Seattle, which clearly, based on the research results, is very conservative. So do you have plans to use this in another project? Yeah. Uh, well, I have plans, sure. The <laughs> 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 question is, do any other developers have plans? Uh, we, we are looking at it for projects in a variety of cities in Chicago, in Boston, and in New York right now. There's definitely a lot of interest shown by contractors, fabricators, and directors being studied in great detail. There, there is a lot of apprehension and a lot of fear factor because it's new. Right. And so contractors tend to be pretty risk averse and owners are even more risk averse. They don't want to be first. And I keep reminding them, well, they won't be first because Seattle's first, Seattle's you'll first. be second. <laughs> So uh, once you get this one in the air. Yeah. I think once we're, you know, maybe a third or a half of the way built, then it will ease a lot of concerns of the naysayers who say, well, that can't be done. Well, we're going to do it. Right. Uh, and then the proof, you know, in six months' time from now will be physical. It will be, well, here it is, and, and how do you argue with that? At the moment, we're studying three other specific projects that are very seriously considering this but there's not been a decision yet to go or not. So Magnus and Clemensic has started their own foundation, mm. right. research foundation? Yeah, so that's totally inspired by the Penko Foundation. In our industry, interestingly enough, there is no other 
like and kind organization to the Panko Foundation. There is no other privately funded entity whose mission it is to support research in the design and construction industry. There are a lot of firms, contractors, architects, and engineers that have foundations, but those foundations generally fund things that are very noble things, everything from scholarships to the symphony to the children's hospital, what have you, but there are none dedicated to funding industry betterment, research and development, mm -hmm. except for the Panko Foundation. It took a number of years for me to kind of figure that out in terms of what that meant for MKA, and figure that out what I meant, what I mean specifically is, you know, why is that? In an industry that's sorely lacking in innovation and pro, you know, kind of progressive thinking, why are we as an industry not investing in ourselves? And so, like many things in my life and in my career, we're going to try and lead by example. And the idea is, well, we're going to form our own foundation, fund it with company profits, and its mission is parallel to the Panko Foundation and that is to support research and development in our industry for the betterment of everybody, not for a proprietary MKA, I'm going to sell you my new widget. It's for the betterment of all of the industry, the theory being that a rising tide raises all ships. And so we're, we're singular now as the only commercial entity only engineering, architecture, or construction firm that has a foundation dedicated to that mission. We're hoping others will follow, and we'll see in time. So what uh, research, what innovations is the foundation currently supporting? So a couple of things that are high on our list. First and foremost, the couple of things we currently have funded are in the area of performance-based wind engineering. Mm -hmm. So that we've had great success over the last 20 years of kind of leading the industry toward a better way to design buildings for seismic loads. The light bulb went on a few years ago that, well, why aren't we doing something similar on the wind side? In particular, places like Miami or Boston or Houston, where extreme wind events are fairly regular, hurricanes and very high winds. The engineering framework within which we design today is, is pretty archaic. And so we're looking to revamp that entire framework for wind design as we did for seismic design. And so that work's ongoing, and the MKA Foundation is funding now three different efforts specifically related to that topic, one at the University of Michigan, one at UCLA, and one jointly with the Panko Foundation and ASCE to write the kind of overall framework guidelines for, for the industry. So that's one topic. Another topic that we're keenly interested in is water resource management. Mm -hmm. uh, noting that kind of our most precious resource on the planet is water. And noting that in places all across the United States there's a drought conditions and water shortage problem and how we go about as civil engineers better managing that resource and funding research projects to better that whole idea. The whole idea of water resource management is an area we've devoted some money and hope to devote more. Uh, and then we have a few other items that we're on the kind of development stages of. For instance, uh, performance-based fire engineering mm -hmm. um, is a really interesting topic where we see a lot of promise. So that's maybe next year's activity. <laughs> For the moment, it's wind and water. Uh, when I grew up, right, very famous band, Earth, Wind, and Fire. We're kind of <laughs> taking our cue from them. <laughs> we don't have a dirt project yet, but we have wind and we have fire. So. <laughs> I'm sure it'll follow then. Yes, perhaps. Um, you currently serve on AISC's Task Committee 5 on Composite Design, and you've previously served as the Chairman of the Council on Tall Buildings and Urban Habitat. Why do you think committee work is important? Uh, again, it's this notion of industry betterment and knowledge sharing. You know, I, I have a very profound respect for those who came before and the knowledge that they, that we can build upon and I think it's our, our collective obligation to not go backwards, but to go forwards. 
and to to use that knowledge and that benefit that we all can live from and benefit by to move it forward for the next. Uh, and we do that collectively as a whole, not individually as little isolated pieces because how the industry moves forward is through kind of global adoption and global adoption only comes where there's lots of people engaged. And so how you get them engaged are through these types of organizations, whether it's the Council on Tall Buildings or ACI or AISC or any of the number of the other things I'm involved in. It's, it's really getting um, buy-in from large constituencies that, yes, we all agree this is a benefit thing for the industry. And then everybody does it and we move. You took over as chairman of the Council on Tall Buildings and Urban Habitat two months before 9-11. Yes, wow, yes. What was your message as spokesman for the council when 9-11 happened? Yeah, that was a very traumatic event for all of us. I have a funny story, I don't know, funny is not the right word, but an interesting story to tell, right? So 9-11 occurred and we were all in shock and stunned and trying to digest what we were seeing unfold. I guess it was two days after, so it would have been September 13th, my phone rang. And it was Nadine Post, who's the building's editor for Engineering News Record magazine. Mm -hmm. And she didn't even announce herself. Uh, she just, the, the first words out of her mouth are, what are you going to do? You're the chairman of the Council on Tall Buildings. What are you going to do? And uh, I was like, wow, I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so we had a really good chat, she and I. And, and through that discussion, it occurred that the Council on Tall Buildings could, could serve as a, a voice for the industry as to what should we do. So what we ended up doing was we organized a group of the Council leadership in all disciplines, from owners to architects, structural, mechanical, electrical, contractors. I mean, that's the power of the Council on Tall Buildings. It's a multidisciplinary organization, not just structural engineers. It's all people involved in tall buildings. And we got together as an industry and talked about what should be the response. And we ended up writing some guides in the aftermath of 9-11 to help uh, move the industry forward in kind of a thoughtful and rational way. At the same time, trying to uh, address the concerns of the general public as expressed through the media uh, about, you know, we'll never build another high-rise building and high-rises aren't safe. And we helped helped change that dialogue a bit, at least, maybe not completely, but a bit, to something that was a bit more rational in terms of what can be done and what was the problem in 9-11. The problem wasn't tall building safety. Right. It was airport security <laughs> right and and letting people have access to missiles essentially <laughs> airplanes right. um, and so the, the solution to that problem wasn't building stronger buildings it was preventing the, the airplanes from running into them that's not to say we shouldn't build better buildings and so that whole event caused us to look very carefully and very thoughtfully at what improvements should we make uh, and since 9-11, there have been a number of improvements made on high-rise safety, but in a more thoughtful and rational way that are actually meaningful, mm -hmm. as opposed to trying to build a fortress in the sky or not build them at all because we're afraid. Uh, so anyway, the, the, the bottom line to is the council served a really important purpose in, in bringing the dialogue together and having an industry response that was based in in kind of reflection and thought, kind of a pragmatic view of what should we do. Right, and not a response based on fear. Right, not on fear and not an emotional response uh, that would suggest that we ought to have buildings with no windows, for example, because <laughs> they need to be concrete bunkers. Right. Uh, it's, not, it's not really the right thing to do. So uh, anyway, today, Thankfully, tall buildings are safer than they have ever been, um, and, and we continue to try and improve them, of course. But you know, based on 9-11, we made a lot of uh, you know, uh, advancements and improvements. Mm -hmm. so. so in 2002, you received the Civil Engineering Alumni Achievement Award from Purdue, and in 2013, you were honored again as a Purdue Distinguished Engineering Alumnus. 
So what did that mean to you from your alma mater? Yeah, it's well, fantastic. I, I, yeah, from Purdue in particular, because uh, I, of course, have a fond memory of those days. To be recognized is wonderful for many organization. It's certainly nothing I ever set out to try and achieve. It's not like I'm trying to win awards or anything. I just kind of go about my business. Mm -hmm. And it's lovely that people occasionally take notice. Uh, and Purdue, just having the soft spot in my heart for Purdue, it's wonderful to, to have that recognition. You were also just named ENR's 2018 Award of Excellence winner for daring to innovate, for spearheading the age of cooperative research and development, and for your relentless pursuit of a better and more constructible built environment. So at the award ceremony, you gave a very impassioned speech about research and innovation. Can you talk about the origins of your interest in that topic? Yeah, so there wasn't any one particular moment. Uh, it's been an evolution uh, that has had many chapters to it. Um, I think the the one thing that is maybe a tipping point for me was in the category of performance-based seismic design, where it wasn't until a broader group of engineers, to be very specific, some of my competitors, recognized it and adopted it as a good idea, that it really took hold and became kind of a, a movement or a change in industry practice. It wasn't until that moment where others recognized its value that it really became something. Before that, it was just a little anomalous thing that MKA and Ron Clemensic were doing off in our little corner. And it was the fact that seeing that evolve as it did that's when the light bulb went on in my mind is that reflecting on a lot of other things in our industry where people or organizations come up with an idea and then they patent it yes. or they copyright it mm -hmm. or they do something to protect their intellectual property right. and I'd say by and large those products or ideas die a very slow death and never receive or never achieve that kind of global adoption by the industry because of the fragmentation of the industry and because I think it's the competitive nature in that fragmentation that says, well, if my competitor invented this thing and now they want to get a royalty every time I use their thing, the last thing I'm gonna do is specify their thing. And it's almost a built-in failure mechanism. Yeah. A resistance. Yes. And so so the idea was if, it, if the idea, if the product or the methodology or the idea is so good that it really can transform the industry, why not give it to everybody? And then it will. If, if I would have somehow patented performance-based seismic design, I don't even know if that's possible, <laughs> but if I had done that, I don't think it would have gone anywhere. Mm -hmm because, okay, I'd be doing it, and MKA would be doing it, but no one else would be, and what would that really mean? Uh, and I, the I, same thing with this new system, the right, same thing. system. So I'm asking why we didn't patent it. There's no point, because, okay, I might get to design one or two or three buildings. Nobody else would benefit from that. We really wouldn't have moved the industry. Right, the industry wouldn't benefit. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I know that there's there's some of my my competitors kind of scoff at this whole notion of, you know, that I'm somehow some bleeding heart liberal and that I'm just giving away all of my profits and blah, blah, blah. And I don't look at it that way at all. I look at it from the sense that as an engineer, right, one of the things that drives me is always striving for the next thing, always striving to improve and be better. So by the time the industry adopts performance-based seismic design, I'm already three steps on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And, and so and then it's that never-ending quest and that never-ending pursuit of the next thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so I have no fear of like running out of ideas or you know running out of steam on that topic because I, I don't believe there is an end. It's just a race that has no end. So speaking of that, what do you predict will be the next big thing? Yeah, well, the, the three areas where we're putting our money right now, and that is uh, water resource management, uh, wind engineering, and fire engineering. 
I think in those categories, there's huge advancements that can be made in very short order, uh, as opposed to some other things that I think in the long term perhaps have some merit, uh, but I think we're a long ways away from those, those things transforming the industry. For example, alternative cementitious materials, cement replacement. We're decades away from that being impactful on the industry at all for a, a whole variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. Or, or three-dimensional printing of buildings. It's nice to dream about maybe doing that on Mars. Okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> but to actually do that in a production sense for a suburban office building in Chicago, mm -hmm. ain't gonna happen in my lifetime. And so I think that those are interesting technologies, but I don't think they're gonna have the impacts in the near term that the, that maybe are purported to be. Uh, but these other topics that I mentioned, I think are low-hanging fruit for very significant advancements in the near term. What do you think are the three most important characteristics a practicing structural engineer should have? Well, kind of thinking about my own experience, first this insatiable uh, desire to learn and, and to not think that you somehow know everything mm -hmm. ever and that always questioning why is it that way and always trying to learn. So that's maybe number one. Number two, it's been my experience that the most successful people in our industry, architects, engineers, contractors, the most successful people are also exceptional communicators. They're able to take their ideas and, and explain them and, and relate them very uh, simply so that others can digest them. Uh, and so having very, very good communication skills. You could be the smartest person in the world, and if you aren't able to communicate your ideas effectively to those of us that aren't so smart, you're nowhere, basically. Nobody will get it. Mm -hmm. And so communicating, I think, is, is really key to all of that. I don't know, just maybe those two, just learning all the time and being able to communicate. Pretty simple. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You're known for being an excellent public speaker. Was that something that came naturally to you, or did you have to work at it? Well, that's something I had to work at, not inherent in my being, so to speak. But I learned from who I think in our industry is the best, and that's John Magnuson. His communication abilities eclipse mine by orders of magnitude. He's got this really innate ability to take very challenging topics and make them very relatable and very understandable. He's taught me so much about how to present and communicate ideas. He continues to coach me on those things. I mean, a recent realization that I had, he didn't ever say these words to me, in fact, but it's from his mentorship that I made this realization, is that when I'm making a presentation, for example, <laughs> early schooling from him came in that when I make a PowerPoint deck, and I'm going to make a presentation. Uh, he used to say, all right, for every word you include on a slide, you owe me a dollar. <laughs> <laughs> and if you put a complete sentence on a slide, you owe me $100. It's a humorous statement, but the thought being that word slides are death. Right, and, absolutely. And so my more recent realization and the mantra that I try and live by when I make my presentations is my words should impact your brain and my images should impact your heart. And it's that combination of kind of thought and emotion that makes the presentation impactful. In particular, like on the ENR presentation, take as a starting point, how can I convey my thoughts, both verbally and through imagery, to really have them complement each other and make them more powerful. What do you see as the greatest challenge that are facing engineers and engineering companies today? Oh, there's many challenges. A couple that I see, one thing we've already talked about, and I'll call it drag in the system, but this built-in reluctance to, to innovate and advance. Uh, it's born in risk aversion from owners to contractors to engineers that if we do anything other than what's already been done, other than what's tried and true, somehow we're taking unusual risk. And with that risk become, comes potentially loss of profits, loss of money, loss of 
prestige, what have you. Uh, and so there's a great reluctance. So that's a great challenge is to try and be confident enough that if you do your work thoughtfully and properly, the risks are manageable. And not being afraid of doing something new just because it's new, if you manage it thoughtfully and properly, then it will be fine. So that's one area. Another area that I, I, I don't have a solution for, but I think it's really impacting our industry now is I'll call it information overload. That there's so much information that our younger staff in particular is bombarded by through social media and through access through the internet. It's overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And the ability to communicate quickly through text messaging and Instagrams, and it's just this barrage of information and to how to filter that in a way that allows people to be efficient and productive and focused on uh, you know, their task or their mission uh, it's very difficult, and it seems to be getting more difficult. And I, I don't know what, how, how to solve that particular thing yet, but I'm thinking about it. I don't have a good idea. Maybe little, little cocoons <laughs> of isolation. Little isolation pods. <laughs> yes, isolation <laughs> pods. Um, but it is, a, I think, a huge challenge, and you know, it, it's it is overwhelming. I guess is the punchline there. What advice do you wish that you had had when you were starting your career? Go slower. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I go too fast sometimes. So going slower would be maybe okay. Mm -hmm. Going fast all the time is, is maybe not always the right thing. So I've slowed down quite a bit. John Magnuson used to, he would comment on speed, and that was going too fast. Too so fast like in your design? No, not just <laughs> going from one thing to the next to the thing, next to the next to the next to the next, and never taking a moment to pause and reflect, or to pause and kind of just relish in the thing, mm -hmm. whatever the thing is. Uh, you know, taking some time to celebrate. I, I tend to like move on to the next thing, even though maybe I should have celebrated. Oh, I don't have time for that. Let's do the next thing. And so maybe that's the thing to note is that along the way, along the journey, taking some time to just chill out and enjoy it for a few minutes mm -hmm. before you got to do the next thing. Because I, I, that was one thing that I have not done well enough. If you were not an engineer, what other profession do you think you would have liked to have <laughs> other than an architect? <laughs> yeah, I'll give, you, I'll give you three. Okay. Because uh, they were episodes in my life. Early in my life, or like when I was in my 20s, uh, I, I truly had a desire, a fascination to want to be a professional volleyball player. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are very tall. I, I was, I was uh, a fairly skilled volleyball player in my high school and collegiate years. I had some aspirations of wanting to do that, but back in those days, now this is the mid-80s, there really wasn't any money to be made doing that. There wasn't a pro beach circuit. There wasn't any sponsorships. There, there was nothing. It was basically the life of a hobo, which my mother made me <laughs> profoundly and acutely aware of. <laughs> so my, my pro volleyball career kind of never materialized because uh, there wasn't any <laughs> career to be had. So uh, abandoning that and going into engineering and kind of doing that was fine. And then at some point, late 20s, 30s, and there, I had this fascination of wanting to be uh, in the restaurant business because I liked people and entertaining people and being kind of gregarious and, and I liked food and good food and good wine and that sounded really fun. Mm -hmm. and, and I have one good friend who's actually in the restaurant business and after observing him for a number of years I said, well, maybe not because <laughs> that's really, really hard. <laughs> Yes. Uh, and so I, I had that fantasy for a while, but then reality set in and said, well, yeah, maybe not so much. Today, uh, the two things that I think are on my list, um, one is I'm very passionate about this, this idea of industry betterment, and if and when I decide to be done with my day job, which there's no near-term plans for that, but if and when I were to be done, I, I can see myself remaining engaged in research and development through the Penko Foundation, through the MKA Foundation, because it's just very enjoyable and, and fun for me to 
work on things that advance the industry. I get great satisfaction out of that. It's very good for my mental health to be thinking about new things, and I, I get a great deal of enjoyment out of that. And the other thing that's come up just recently, as in the last year or two, is vegetable farming. Okay, that's it's, <laughs> it's a bit of a joke, I suppose, in the sense it's a little tongue-in-cheek. But what attracts me about vegetable farming <laughs> is, is one is I do like to cook and I do like to eat good food. Mm -hmm. And having your own fresh produce is a really wonderful thing if you're a cook. I, I have ventured to Italy a couple times and they're wonderful about having kind of a farm-to-table idea where they're growing the tomatoes and the cilantro and the, all of the products right there in the garden outside of the home or the restaurant. Mm -hmm. And I love that and I thought well that would be fun to have my own vegetable garden because it's very peaceful, very slow. Slow. <laughs> very, uh, yeah, soothing and zen-like zen thing. Zen, yes. Uh, that I could see after after living the life that I have that that would be something as a alternative life that would be fun. Now, others who know me well say, well, that would last for about three days with you, <laughs> and then the vegetables wouldn't be growing fast enough, and they would drive you crazy. <laughs> um, Maybe you'll come up with some new innovative way to make them grow faster. Perhaps, <laughs> perhaps miracle grow on steroids. Um, but yeah, today, uh, you know, if I if I were to not do structural engineering in my day job, I would probably uh, spend a fair amount of time still engaged in research and development, and I would have some vegetable plants. Ten years from now, Ron Clementsic sees himself doing what? Vegetable farming. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, I I like to ski, snow ski. I like to golf. I like to travel. Uh, I like being in places and discovering new things. I don't like the airplane part of the traveling, mm -hmm. but but the actual like Once going. Once you get to, there, I, I very much enjoy that. Uh, so yeah, these things: skiing, golfing, traveling, cooking, growing vegetables. Uh, yeah, and and still in, engaged in R and D. Uh, yeah, ten years from now for sure. That seems like the plan. Well, Ron, those are all my questions for you. Cool. Thank you so much. It's yeah. been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate it. One, one parting shot, I suppose. Uh, it is now my my mission and my passion to try to motivate the industry as a whole to invest in itself, to have other firms follow MKA's leadership. And as I mentioned in my ENR speech, I think I used the words "shame on us." For investing exactly zero in industry betterment, people who will, will take exception to what I'll say is they say, "Well, we we donate a lot of in-kind time." I think it's a cop-out, personally. Mm -hmm. That it's kind of easy, and you don't scrutinize your in-kind donations as critically as you would if it was money, cold hard cash. Right. And so, what I'm asking people, firms, to do is consider what modest sum of your annual profit not your revenue, but your profit, are you willing to dedicate toward industry betterment activity? And in the ENR speech, I use the number 2%, just as a very modest starting point. I say zero is unacceptable. So what's the right number? I don't know, 1%, 2%, 10%? Let's start at 2 And if you say 2% of your profit, cold hard cash, and now you're going to invest that money, in an activity that you believe will better your firm, at the same time it betters the industry, what is that thing? Surely it's something. Mm -hmm. What is it? And I'm sure there are other people that have a similar interest in that same thing. And this is one thing that I think the Panko Foundation could do is to help create this nexus of energy, this nexus of ideas where like and kind people have similar desires or wants or needs and see the same issue to attack, but they only have 2% of 100 bucks, they have $2. Well, if I got a lot of people with $2, now we can solve that problem. And, and so this is where I hope the industry will, will go with some drum beating by myself and others involved in the Panko Foundation to, to recognize that we have benefited from all of those that came before us. We've benefited the last 
eight, ten years from a wonderful market where we've all made a decent amount of money because mm -hmm. the market conditions have been good. And so uh, it's our obligation, I think, to, to figure out how to give back so that the next generation and the next can have it better. That's the challenge. Where's your 2%? Does your foundation have a website or anything? Yes. Can uh, yeah, you can go mkafoundation.org and see what we're up to. Uh, and same thing, uh, pankofoundation.org. You can see what the Panko Foundation is up to. Most, most notably, I think, on the Panko News side, we have recently brought on Ann Ellis as a uh, special advisor to the board, and she's going to help with uh, this outreach campaign. The two percent campaign, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, Anne's very uh, noted leader in our industry, and we're looking forward. She just joined us in the last week or two, so very excited about her engagement and involvement and kind of helping move the Panko Foundation and the entire two percent movement forward. Uh, so that's kind of the next chapter. Great. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. It has very been fun. a pleasure. Yeah, I appreciate it. This has been a presentation by the American Institute of Steel Construction. For more information on AISE continuing education opportunities, visit us on the web at AISE.org slash webinars. And remember, there's always a solution in steel.